Blog Talk Radio. It's been a long road getting from there to here. It's been a long time, but my time is finally here. I can feel the change in the way right now. Nothing's in my way. Good evening, everybody. This is Dr. Jess Armine coming to you from the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine here in southeastern Pennsylvania. How's everybody doing tonight? Um, we have a really special show, uh, but before we get to it, um, our guest was kind enough to make a um, PowerPoint. Okay, you can pick up the PowerPoint at either uh, my blog at Dr. Jess Armine on Facebook, uh, the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine on Facebook, um, where else? I'm not really sure. Uh, <laughs> you'll see it there. You'll see it on our um, our blog that is, uh, let me see, I'll make sure it's there so everybody knows. Uh, let's see. Okay, one more time. It's on, um, oh yes, the Bioindividualized Medicine Group. It's on Disease Research Group, God Endorphins, Martin Chiropractic. Uh, it's practically everywhere. Okay, and uh, it's easy enough to get, and of course, the link for the show is there. Uh, we're looking forward to um, looking forward to uh, serving you this way, and um, we have a great guest tonight. But before we get to our guest, I want to let you know that our new website is in fact up. Uh, it's not perfect, but it's working. It's the same uh, website, methylationsupport.com. Okay, if you go there. You'll be taken to the new website. On the website, there are numerous things. The first thing I'd like you to look at is uh, that you can sign up for our newsletter, okay? And if you give us your email address, uh, the podcast I did on how to read your 23andMe without going crazy, I mastered that into a MP4 movie, and uh, you can get that for free. Uh, our Podcasts are still on there for free, but I did take several of them and got them transcribed and together some of them as um, videos and some of them as just transcriptions plus the um, audio. And we're selling them at the store for like minimal money, like $7 or $10, okay, just to co cover the cost of uh, remastering them. So you might want to check that out. You know, we, we are putting our store together. <laughs> and uh, that's a bit of a... Hmm interesting thing to do. Okay, so 
this week and the rest of the summer, we're going to be uh, portraying uh, the people, the practitioners who are on our recommended methylation practitioner list. Uh, this particular list is very, very special in my estimation because everybody who is on it, okay, and there's only eight people on it now, there's only one more getting ready to get on, one that came on last week, uh, have met the following requirements. They have either attended physically or virtually the uh, MABIM course in January 2015 and or have taken two or three methylation courses from Dr. Ben Lynch and or have completed FDN training and or have completed the entire webinar series from the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine with a score of 90 or above, <laughs> coming soon, okay, and have spent sufficient time mentoring with Sean Bean and myself and have demonstrated competency in bioindividualized medicine. People, we're the only people, we're the only people, yeah, doing this level of vetting to make sure that the practitioner that you call is knowledgeable and willing and able to take care of you in, in a truly holistic manner. So um, I decided that for the rest of the summer that I would introduce you to them one by one. And therefore tonight, I have the honor of introducing Dr. Ann, oh my God, Coovering? Yes? Vancouver. Ann? Oh, and Vancouvering, Dr. <laughs> Ann Vancouvering, who is a naturopath, who I will let her tell you about herself. Uh, hopefully you've gotten the PDF by now, but she is, aside from being incredibly intelligent, motivated, and a great practitioner, she is bicoastal. I'm bipolar now. <laughs> okay, she's bicoastal. Okay, she practices between Long Island, New York, and California. Now, if that isn't psychotic, I don't know what is, but hey, that's just me. Okay, so uh, Dr. Ann, if you'd be so kind uh, to introduce yourself, tell everybody about you, please. Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? Mm hmm Okay. So, um, yeah, hi. Uh, I'm a naturopathic doctor. Um, I love, for some reason, complex chronic disease, but my first love is uh, autism. I have a son with uh, Asperger's syndrome, and uh, I have been thinking about autism for almost 20 years now since I figured out uh, something was going on with my son. And I went back to medical school to learn about it. And um, somewhere along the way, I discovered this methylation stuff. And um, even more luckily, I discovered Dr. Uh, Jess and Sean. And I am finally feeling like I can kind of understand what autism is about, which is pretty exciting for me. So, um, and I hope for my patients. Anyway, um, my passion really is to help children and adults. I think the adults get left off of this a lot on the autism spectrum and also their families and people who are caretaking them. Um, I don't really believe in curing autism. I think that autistic pe people on the autism spectrum are really interesting and have a lot to offer and... Um, have a different way of looking at the world and we would be poor without them, but I do think that there's a lot of suffering that comes with being uh, on the spectrum in our society and I do want to ease that and I want to ease some of the physical stuff that goes along with it and um, make everything, just allow people to be themselves without limitations that are avoidable. 
So that's sort of my perspective on that. Um, I became a naturopathic doctor because I went through this with my son and I found basically no to very little help um, from the conventional medical community. I found no answers as to why we had so much autism and why it was growing. I found no answers to help my son uh, through all of this, um, although I did find some great therapists and you know helpful people along the way. None of it was um, really therapeutic at all, except for just how do you cope? So um, the with the new advances in genetics that we see with methylation and the testing that we have now and looking at environmental factors and what's going on with uh, the microbiome and emotional influences on health, that's naturopathic medicine and I'm super, I think I found the best lens to look at autism through and I'm, you know, excited to be a naturopathic doctor working with autistic people because I think that it's the best um, marriage of everything that I have found. Um, so, uh, let's see. I don't want to just bore everybody with numbers, but these are really important numbers. We well, if you, are... uh, if you kind of tell them, um, not to interrupt, I apologize, uh, oh, sure. what slide you're on, like you're on slide number oh, four. Oh, I am now. now on slide number four, right. <laughs> okay, because people people will listen to this later on, and um, okay. Sorry. they'd like to just yeah. follow it. And, 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 of course, these statistics are immensely important. Yeah. So what we are seeing now, and this, so the, the most recent thing that are, is on the Internet was uh, a two, 2012 uh, uh, chart, which shows that the children born in 2002, there's a 1 in 68 in, uh, incidence of autism. And in 1992, so the children born in 1992, just 10 years earlier, there's a 1 in 150 chances of a child being born with a child having autism was born that year and in the 1950s this was one in 10,000 now of course there is some awareness level that has happened but I think that many of us who know people on the autism spectrum don't think that this would have been missed and people would have just gone oh you're perfectly normal oh now we have a name for you now you're not perfectly normal I think that there isn't definite increase in the number of people with autism and it's worrisome, it's troublesome, and it needs an explanation. Um, it runs in families, but it's kind of at an epidemic level and is it a genetic epidemic? How can such a thing be possible? So um, I've been looking for that answer for a long time. And um, here's a little number, slide number five here is just a picture of the increased incidence of autism in the United States. Um, this is not even in worldwide, this is in the United States. So... And these are provided by the Centers for Disease Control, which we all know is not... Um, is, yeah, they're um, not. Is that really reflective of the true uh, incidence of autism? Well, I think it's reflected of the number of people being diagnosed. Um, I think maybe some people are being diagnosed, um, you know, improperly, but there's also people who are being missed. So I think it's a fairly good estimation because it's, it's, a, it's being diagnosed in childhood when there's much more attention being put on people than adult um, mental illness. 
Um, and it's not a mental illness, but that's how it's viewed. So, um, right, right. I think I think that it, I think that this is probably fairly accurate. Um, they may miss some people with Asperger's. They may miscategorize some other people, but I think it's probably fairly accurate. Um, so, my theory is that um, the reason for autism is multifactorial. It's not it's not a disease. It's it's a way a body responds to the world. And um, likely the reason for this increase centers around detoxification and methylation. Um, these kids, these people, are kind of like canaries in a coal mine. These are the people who are sensitive, more sensitive to the toxins in our world, more sensitive to the uh, sort of environmental insults that we are all dealing with to the point, and they're, they're sensitive to them young enough that it changes the way their, their brain and body work. And these are the ones who cannot take the increase in toxins. Um, many of us are suffering from worse health, but these people are showing it in much more vivid ways. Um, so, um, I, that, when I first saw the methylation pathway in medical school, it was like, that's it. That's the reason that we're having more autism. And the thing is, it was just like, I have to learn about this. And I have been trying to learn about it ever since. And thank goodness there's people like Dr. Jess and Sean and Ben Lynch and Paul Anderson out there forging the way and doing tons of research and allowing the rest of us to ride on their uh, coattails because it's a lot of information, but it's vital to the health of, of everybody, but especially the autism community. Um, so it's not just methylation, of course. The methylation is just a piece of a whole big clockwork of gears. You know, it's like a big, everything has to work together. And there are definitely other places in that, in that, mechanism that need to work for methylation to work and they all have to be working together so um a good point because you know i jump all i jump all over anybody who just even says the letters mthfr by itself you know? <laughs> yeah i was very careful i put that in right away <laughs> yeah but I also, I also i also i also agree with that i i think that i have seen too many people just treat the mthfr and had it backfire and had it, or just had it not work, but often backfire on people. So um, by itself, it's not enough. Um, so anyway, um, this is just some background. I'm on slide nine now. Um, what is methylation? Because that's a biochemical term and I didn't know what it was until I went to medical school. Now all these people know what it is and I'm very impressed. But um, for those of you who don't, um, methylation is pretty much you're adding a molecule, which is one carbon and three hydrogens, called a methyl group, to another molecule. And that is actually the way the body does a whole lot of biochemical uh, interactions. It makes things happen. By adding this methyl group, now things can happen. And so it is vitally important and super simple, which 
everything vitally important should be super simple. Um, mm -hmm. Some methylation is required for processing uh, toxins to detoxify food additives, preservatives. Also, it's necessary for immune system to clear neurotransmitters. It's necessary for making um, the reproduction. It's necessary for brain function. And it's also a huge part of making glutathione, which is a major intracellular antioxidant. And so that's more detox. But one of the things that that's important is, is that they have done so many studies of people on the autism spectrum, almost every one of them is low in glutathione. So that shows us that there is something going on with the methylation pathway in these people. So um, not that they're the only people low in glutathione by any means. <laughs> they definitely are. No, you know, it's, it's okay to concentrate you know, directly on the autism spectrum okay. because, you know, it, it's a, um, it's a conundrum, you know, I, I know you've been, you've been associated with MAPS. I, I was associated with MAPS when it was Dan, you know, defeat yeah. autism now. And I know what a conundrum this can be. Yeah. And uh, the worst thing for uh, parents of autistic children is to get, you know, uh, conflicting and uh, inaccurate information. So go yeah. for it. Okay. So anyway, now slide 10. Um, so basically, when there's a, if you have a problem with methylation, and there's all those things that have to happen, methylation is necessary for all of those different things to happen, and you get a buildup of things that need methylation to make them happen, like a buildup of environmental toxins, plus food additives, plus preservatives, plus stress, plus et cetera, et cetera, um, people who have slower methylation pathways can't meet those demands. And then there is a backup. So they need the stressors removed, and they also need all of the vitamins and minerals and nutrients that are required to make the enzymes. All these enzymes are made up of things, and you need those things to make them. And when you don't make them well, you have to make way more of them. So there's a whole nutritional piece that is required and sometimes a supplemental nutritional piece. But without those interventions, these, the uh, bodies get more and more backed up and things start to go wrong and we start to see symptoms. And sometimes we see symptoms very suddenly, but that doesn't mean that the one thing caused it. it that there's a whole backup and then this is, the, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. So... Um, you know, we see that, you know, many people see that with uh, vaccines, but it's not just the vaccines, it's everything that led up to that, too. Um, so here's a list of methylation stressors, um, environmental toxins, xenoestrogens, that's things like the PCBs and stuff in, in plastics and... Um, there is xenoestrogens, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then pesticides, uh, especially glyphosate, has been implicated in autism. Heavy metals, we've all heard about mercury, but also aluminum um, and other heavy metals. Food sensitivities, so uh, gluten and dairy and soy are big in this, but almost anything can be a food sensitivity. Those are just some of the bigger players. Um, having a leaky gut, which means kind of like you become have a food sensitivity to almost everything. <clears throat> That's a whole other issue. Um, 
immune challenges. Uh, methylation is required to deal with things that are going on in your immune system. So if you have a chronic infection, uh, we see it with Lyme fairly frequently, but other chronic infections, the, the pandas people can flip, you know, the autism pandas thing is not necessarily clear-cut line. Uh, vaccines also are immune challenges. And, uh, and then just, and stress, you know. So, um, noise, um, all those things are stressors. So these all require the methylation pathway to be functioning. And if you have a bunch of these together, you can make it, you can make anybody sick, but the, the people with genetic susceptibility get sicker. So is it a genetic epidemic? Well, your genes are there and they can be switched on by these um, toxins. And that is an epigenetic thing. That's what we call epigenetics, when you have the potential to have something happen and it starts to happen because of what you're exposed to. doesn't mean you have to have it, but it means that when you're exposed to things, you can get it. Um, can, you, can you define for us the difference between genetic and epigenetic? Oh, I can try. It's a little complex. <laughs> so, okay. Trying to, so let's, trying to hone it down because I have my way of thinking okay. about it. But Okay, so let's say, all right, we have all these people who have these methylation defects. We'll just be simple and say methylation defects, even though it's much more. We have all these people who have these. Now, their grandparents probably had them too, and their great-grandparents. But those people, their grandparents and great-grandparents, likely did not have autism because it was one in 10,000. It was much less common. And so they had the potential to develop autism if exposed to the right things, but they weren't exposed to them. So those genes never got turned on. And so therefore, they didn't get autism. And that the, the Genetics that we think about, like blue eyes or albi albinism, that is actually a larger piece of your genome, and it is, it is invariably expressed, right? You don't get a choice whether you get blue eyes or not. You either have blue eyes or you don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't suddenly become blue because you got exposed to something. So that is how I see the difference between epigenetics and genetics. Um, you're you you're absolutely it. correct. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. I think like, that's that's the difference. I usually make it, you know, a little different when I'm talking to people, but it's only because I want to make it, um, you know, as simple as possible. You know. Right. So go well, ahead. We can just think. We can just think about the the BRCA gene. You know, people have had the everybody the BRCA gene is the breast cancer gene that people get tested for. Now people have had that for generations, but we now have more breast cancer doesn't mean that they didn't have the gene. It just meant that it wasn't turned on. So. Right. Okay. So, um, so these smaller mutations, these, you know, things not like al albine, being albino or something like that, those are known as SNPs. They're just a single piece of your DNA. They're not a larger section of your DNA. They're not a chromosome or anything. So this, these, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about MTHFR and all these other things, the SNPs. Um, now, just to make your head spin and cro cross your eyes, I put the methylation cycle in there. 
and it's actually kind of in the center here. <laughs> but well, that's all right. On my, last show, on my last show, I really expanded it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you see that here we are, even in this small picture of a huger thing, we, sh we see the methylation cycle is, is in the center, but all these other things have to work, and everything that's colored on this um, picture is a SNP, and it is one that we actually can pull out and look at with Sterling's report and see if it's working, and it's pretty exciting. So um, that's why we don't just talk about NTHFR, because all these other things have to work, too. Um, but um, anyway, the, so the most famous one is MTHFR, and we all, this is, this is our initiation, we all have to say the word. It's methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. And when you can and say anybody that, who can't say is in a real practitioner. Yeah, right. It's, that's, that's, you know, it's sort of like there was those code words during the World War II where you had to say, you know, porridge in, in Polish, and it was in, unpronounceable except for to a Polish person, and that was how they kept people out. So this kind of thing. That's how we do this with methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. <laughs> okay. Anyway, sorry. This is a trivia. <laughs> Don't be hell, I get it. Um. Anyway, so there are, other, there are definitely other SNPs. Um, some of the ones that I see the most of that are related to autism are the um, other detox SNPs, the ones involving glucuronidation and sulfation. And that's uh, CBS is the one people have heard of the most. And then uh, the making and removing of neurotransmitters. So that's the COMT, MAO, and GAD SNPs. And then all the ones have to do with mitochondrial function because that's huge in autism. And then the gut health ones. Um, that's where I see the biggest um, kind of fall down. Uh, that's probably not a proper word, but uh, where I see the biggest... That's where you see the most involvement. You're seeing, you know, and that makes perfect sense with the mitochondria there. If the mitochondria doesn't work, you're not going to be able to produce your energy. You're not going to be able to heal. You know, yeah. the rest of them, you know, go down into certain pathways that allow certain, uh, you know, things to happen that engender certain behaviors. Right, exactly. So we have the current definition of autism spectrum in the DSM-4 is one that is purely mental. I mean, it is behavioral. It is, you know, word association. It is. So socialization, it's all behavioral. And it, this condition is still talked about in mainstream medicine as a mental issue. And it is treated as a mental issue with mental medications. And this is a big problem because just because we define something in a certain way means we look at it that way. But most people on the autism spectrum also have uh, gut issues. I mean, there's it's it's rampant. In fact, there's this guy, uh, Dr. Arthur Krigsman, who I heard speak at MAPS, who has coined the term autism enteritis. He has he has a whole set of uh, diagnostic things that go along with being autistic, from the way the ribs are shaped to the way the stool is formed to um, all of these things. There's certain kinds of diarrhea. It's it's it is as much a part of autism as the mental stuff, but it is not a defined part of it, so we don't consider it. 
but this is a whole body disorder. This is not a mental disorder. And there's actually, in my world, there is no such thing as a purely mental problem because the body and especially the gut and the brain are so connected that um, anything that has to do with the gut will affect the brain and vice versa. You're preaching to the choir. Yeah, well, this is the stuff that Dr. Perlman's been talking about in, you know, big, you know, New York Times bestseller things, the gut-brain axis and the, you know, grain-brain and all that kind of stuff. So it's definitely out there as, you know, real studies and very important. So anyway, um, the, the microbiome of autism has been examined a lot. And there's been, stu- there's been articles in Scientific American, popular press, about how the bacteria that live in the, in the intestines of autistic people are different than different strains and different numbers than those who live in the, uh, the guts of people who don't have autism. And um, Actual different been- strains. Actually, different strains and different numbers. Um, There's a real lack of a certain kind called bifidobacter, and there's an overgrowth of lactobacillus tends to be, but there's it's much more much more complicated than that. Um, But um, they have done actual studies um, with mice where they take sterile mice. I don't know how they get a sterile intestine, but they have sterile mice, and they give them a fecal transplant from an autistic mouse, and again, I don't know what an autistic mouse looks like, but they have their autistic strains. And they, the, the mouse who was previously sterile develops autistic behaviors just from having the mi- microbiome of the autistic mouse introduced into its body and colonized, which is fascinating. And mm-hmm. also... It goes the other way. They can clean out the guts of an autistic mouse and give it the microbiome of a non-autistic mouse and the mouse is no longer autistic, which has huge implications for therapy. Uh, um, I've, been, I've been hearing that the, the next great tsunami in genetics coming along is going to be in the gut microbiome. Yeah, they call That's it... That's what's and really... Then, and then there's Go the ahead. virome. <laughs> Are we, we all, <laughs> speak? The, um, well, you have the, the, the microbiome as we know it. All of those bacteria have viruses associated with them, and they all have a, have a whole ecosystem. And that's called the virus. Really? And that's coming, too. I think that's about 10 years. We're going to hear about that a lot more, but it's beginning to be studied. Um, so... So that's just really fascinating stuff. And, you know, again, we have 10,000 bacterial cells in our body for every one of us, every one human cell. So um, we're basically just spaceships for bacteria. (laughs) No, 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 you're you're absolutely 100% correct. You know, we're... And I don't know if they speak Klingon or not, but you can talk to them later. Yeah. Well, they, they will. If they don't know, they will. I promise you they will. 
All right. It will be it will be a requirement. All righty. So anyway, the one scenario, and this is something I actually see a lot and agree with, is that autism is primarily um, a brain inflammation, and that inflammation comes from both the gut and from methylation not being able, not being able to detoxify neurotransmitters, which are the brain uh, chemical messengers and not being able to detoxify toxins so that the brain gets inflamed. And um, children who are born with autism, not everybody starts with autism who has it. Some people are born with it. Some people develop it later. Um, usually, you don't develop it any later than three and a half. So it's, it's, it's also a critical juncture of this kind of insult. But they're born with larger brains. Their brains are larger, they're not pruning, and they're also inflamed. And they have done studies showing uh, the type of inflammation and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, what we see in, when you test is that in urinary neurotransmitters, you see incredibly high levels of dopamine in children who um, are nonverbal autistic. They... It's just off the charts high. It's you know past patho past. Uh, I just lost the word um, psychotic and into. So it's like oh yeah yeah hey, uh, for those um, for those out there who are listening, um, especially patients whenever they I've, I've um, worked with them on neurotransmitters, I always tell them dopamine is a very funny neurotransmitter. Funny meaning strange, not funny. haha. <clears throat> dopamine is your uh, neurotransmitter is satiety. So when you have a nice meal and you get that ah feeling, that's dopamine satisfying, you know, filling into the receptors. Uh, dopamine, when it's very low, will give you uh, a special kind of depression. But dopamine on the other side uh, can give you paranoia, hallucinations, and worse. And the excitation itself, to just use some numbers, um, if the high number for dopamine in the lab is 170 people with paranoia be like 250 300 people with psychosis 450 maybe 500 and all of my autistic children every single one of them have dopamines in the 600 range and the highest i've seen is 783 okay i think that the frank autistics are not even of this earth they don't nothing can get in no, no memories can form because they have a five alarm fire in their brain yeah, and you know, and you you can see that as a parent, you can see them just trying to make it shut up. They're hitting themselves. They're they're making noises. They're trying. They're they're doing rhythmic movements just to try and organize their brain, which will not shut up. And it's it's really you know, you look at them and that's not comfortable. They're spending a lot of energy just trying to get your brain to settle down. And the organism does not spend energy where it doesn't need to spend energy. So if you have a hyperactive kid, something is going on. So um, mm -hmm. so it can be dopamine. Also, they've done studies where they actually are uh, analyzing the brain. So we're talking, we're just talking about urinary neurotransmitters. That's the stuff excreted through the urine. But in the brain, there's high levels of glutamate a lot. And if you look at mm -hmm. the symptoms of high glutamate, they echo really closely the symptoms of autism. 
So mm-hmm. the and the the thing that breaks down glutamate is that GAD enzyme, and that's often um, compromised. I see it, it compromised at almost every single time in the autistic um, people whose I've looked at their uh, genetic profiles. So. Um, um, anyway, so another thing that can cause brain inflammation are chronic illnesses. So things like, especially Lyme and some of the co-infections like Bartonella and Babesia affect the brain and affect brain inflammation. So they can heighten the symptoms of autism. Or they, you know, in, if, if, if a child who is already autistic gets Lyme later, it just like they become more autistic. But um, in little ones, it can, or if it's congenital, it can sometimes be the provoker of autism. So that's very interesting. There's a lot of work being done with that particular uh, avenue. And, of course, there's also the strep pandas um, and the other uh, chronic viruses that can be in there, too. And then there are autoimmune conditions, um, that affect the NMDA receptors, which are <clears throat> glutamate-driven, um, and they can also be in, in, in there. So you can have autistic symptoms from all sorts of reasons, and, um, and it kind of depends when you get these conditions, whether or not you end up chronically ill or autistic or whatever it is. So... Um, but here we are back to epigenetics. Just because your child has genetics that can mean autism doesn't mean that they're going to get it. Again, it's, it's what timing and how much and, um, you know, and a little bit the luck of the draw, but also where you live. Are you, you know, there's higher rates of autism if you live next to freeways. You know, go figure. That's obviously a toxic exposure. So. Mm-hmm. So, um, By the way, everybody, uh, not to interrupt my apologies, if you have a question for Dr. Ann, uh, if you're in the chat room, go ahead and type it in, and I will ask her. Uh, if you'd like to call in, the number is 646-595-2277. That's 646-595-2277. And even though we're going through a bit of a lecture here, feel free to call up and, uh, and ask your questions because that's uh, what we're here for. Okay. Go ahead, please, Dr. Absolutely. So, um, so now, okay, you know, one of the things that the trouble is to talking about all the reasons ways things can go wrong is that you get kind of depressed. But there are definitely things to do. Once we understand what's going wrong, then we understand how to help. And that's what I really like about having. I feel like I'm understanding the mechanisms of autism now. So. One of the things you have to do is figure out which stressors, what are the things that are the provoking triggers for this individual? And whether is it environmental, is it nutritional, is it immunological, is it, you know, a physical thing? And how do we remove them or mitigate them or make them less or make them gone, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have to look at the SNPs. We have to look at the enzyme pathways and see which ones are compromised or, you know, have the, you know, are less quick. And then, okay, if you're not making, if half of the enzymes you make aren't good, you're going to have to make twice as many. So then you need a lot more certain nutrients than other people. And those nutrients are, a lot of them are minerals and uh, 
micro minerals that are the trace elements that we've lost in our soils, so we're not getting them. And molybdenum and manganese and and selenium, these are things that are required, and many people are low in them, especially. Even if you eat a whole foods diet, you can be low in them. So that's why nutritional supplementation comes in. Um, and then you have to make sure that the gut is working properly, that people are eating good food and that they are, can absorb their food and that they're not eating food that they're, sens- not, that they're sensitive to. I feel like I just lost you. Hello? No, I'm right here. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, you know, the, the food, certain foods provoke inflammation in certain individuals, and that's very individual. <laughs> and you have to understand what those are. And um, you ha- also a big, huge piece of the autism enteritis is lack of motility. It's like you don't move the stuff through your gut fast enough, and you end up, you know, most people who have autistic children have what they call a toilet stick because these huge logs come out and it's very Ooh. painful. Yeah, it's, it's you, you know, and if you talk to autist, parents of autistic kids, they're like laughing and saying, yeah, I got one of those. How do you break it up? How do you get it down the toilet? You know, and this is a huge issue. And when things are stuck in the gut for longer, they become more toxic. You reabsorb your toxins. You're not getting rid of things. So, you have to address that. And then, of course, if there's leaky gut for whatever reason, um, that also has to be addressed. And we also have to address the microbiome. You have to put in the strains of <clears throat> probiotics and a bacteria that are going to be helpful and non-inflammatory. And um, most of the time people do that with oral probiotics, although some people are getting more inventive. Um <clears throat> Um, also, not only do you have to get the food in your body and digest it and make it small enough so that your cells can absorb it, you have to have cells that can absorb it. You have to have cell membranes that are properly permeable, keep things out that are supposed to be out, let things in that are supposed to let in. And that's a whole other set of SNPs, and it's also a whole other set of healthy fats and, and good diet that are required for that. So, um, so we have a lot of tools for helping people with autism. Um, some of them are appropriate to some people, some are appropriate to others, but pretty much everybody needs some good testing. Um, even, you know, organic acid testing shows you how the body is using nutrients, which is huge. Um, a full SNP report, you know, Sterling's app, not like the not just the few that you get. You want to see the whole thing. You want to see the mitochondrial SNPs. You want to see mm-hmm. the GAD SNPs. You want to see all of those because you need to know how they're all fitting together. So I use Sterling's app um, because it's the most comprehensive um, and the 23andMe because it's the cheapest way to get all that information. Um, I'd let everybody know why 23andMe is important as opposed to everything else that they've been um they've been exposed to? Well, okay, so 23andMe is basically, you can get your whole genome sequenced for $99. Um, what you do with that information 
that you know that information, that raw data, isn't that helpful unless you're a researcher. You have to have it put through something else that will highlight the stuff we have science on or whatever. So um, I find that you know you basically get more information if you wanted to test each gene. You would be out thousands of dollars. There are certain panels that test. Um, like the GenomeMind panel will test for the genes that have something to do with how you process um, medications for the brain. You know, so that that's very helpful if you have a mental disorder and you don't know whether you should take um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors or <coughs> atypicals or tricyclics or whatever. That'll tell you how you're going to manage those. So that's helpful, but that's you know three hundred dollars just for those six or seven mm-hmm. genes. And um, and then there's um, other panels, methylation panels, but 23andMe really gives us the most information. Um, it, it does have, there are a few problems in that with privacy. It is not HIPAA compliant. It's a consumer lab. Uh, people always get really concerned. It says it's not going to give me any medical information. No, it's not supposed to because they're not doctors, but it does. And, give and us they shouldn't the, be making clinical decisions at all. Right, exactly, and they, you know, a, they don't have a, any history. And they don't. Uh, their their whole purpose is to you know to do what they're doing, which is ancestry stuff, um, right. but also to pre uh, you know provide us with a um, reasonably priced uh, access to you know a goodly portion of the genome. I mean, it's it's huge. I mean, this is this is amazing that it's ninety nine dollars. I mean, ten years ago we couldn't get this information. This is incredible, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I'm I find it really exciting and mm-hmm. amazing that, that that this is this is this is one of the places where science has really helped us. Um, it's not always you know science without wisdom is a little bit scary, but this place is is okay so far. <laughs> um, <laughs> we won't get in there. <laughs> no, okay. I'm not, sorry. No philosophical. It's called common sense. It's um, yes. it's lacking, okay, so, lacking these days. Yes. Okay. So a neurotransmitter panel is very helpful. A comprehensive digestive stool analysis, where they look at the fecal fats and they look at are there any parasites? You know, um, how is your uh, pancreas working? That's a great test. Um, I didn't put in here, but I should have um, food sensitivity testing. Although you can't really do that mm-hmm. on little littles, it doesn't really work if they're under two very well. So um, you know, uh, so a, a proper Lyme test, not um, one that you know tests various strains and is is. I mean, Lyme testing is extremely uh, primitive. I'll put it that way. But you know, no. you can get. I, I mean, it's it's no, not. No, it's, it's not, right. Go ahead. No, no, no. You know, you know my feeling about Lyme testing. It's um, it's a lot of what um, it's a lot of what testing's done, what's been promulgated by the CDC. What's um, it's all a matter of having how who reads the test, and if they understand how the testing is done, so they can know the limitations of the test and how to correlate it. When you have a high index of suspicion. Okay, your index of suspicion is everything. Right. Well, that, and that's one thing. And the other thing is that it's testing immune response. 
And so if your immune system mm-hmm. is not working well, you're not going to get a positive test. So we have a problem with people who are really sick whose immune system is not working well getting negative tests. So it's just there's a lot of problems. You know, if, it were, if they were doing it now, they'd be testing molecular. You know, they need to bring it up to date with that because it it's, it's, it's needs to be, it needs help. Um, anyway, and then heavy metal testing, um, intracellular nutrient testing can be really helpful. What is actually in the cells versus in the blood and then, um, other testing as, as indicated. So, um, now that most of this stuff is not covered by insurance. So, you know, you have to prioritize it for people, but that's what, that's, that's my ideal there. Um, and then, so first of all, first and foremost is diet. Um, the, there's certainly famous diets out there, and I'd say probably 30 to 40% of people with autistic symptoms have a huge, huge changes in those, in their symptoms right away with diet. I mean, it's, it's huge. And then they, they eat the wrong thing, and their symptoms come back, and, you know, it's very obvious. Other people, it's just sort of this level of inflammation from eating the wrong foods or eating eating glutamate when they have high glutamate. And so it has to be tweaked, and it's not one universal diet for every person on the autism spectrum. But, you you know, staying away from processed foods, staying away from foods with pesticides, staying, uh, getting your healthy fats and... Um, Usually getting rid of the big food sensitivity triggers um, are the, the bases, and then you can tweak it from there. Um, again, nutritional supplements as building blocks for uh, SNP pathways. Amino acids can help with neurotransmitter balance while you work all this out. Um, the proper probi- pro- probiotics. Um, and then... Um, if there's an anti, if there's a you know a virus or a bacteria that needs to be addressed, and unfortunately antibiotics are very hard on your microbiome. So if you can address it through herbs or homeopathy, um, ozone, <clears throat> some of the bioresonance stuff, the uh, new thing, the LDI, um, if you can get ahead of the infection with that stuff, it's going to be much easier to put the pieces back together afterwards. Um, the other thing is letting fevers be fevers. Um, our fevers are the body's way of responding to infection, and they're extremely good at it. They increase your white blood cells. They make the body very inhospitable to foreign invaders. They make you lie down and sleep so you get better, they make you stop eating so your energy is concentrated on getting rid of the illness. <clears throat> if you have a fever that's 101, 102, it's doing its work. It should be left alone. And Tylenol is what they often give to children because they're not supposed to give aspirin anymore. Tylenol depletes glutathione. So here we are in trouble again. We have somebody whose methylation pathways don't manage illness who we've stopped their natural way of getting rid of illness, and now we've given them something that keeps them from detoxifying properly. So that's a really important thing. 
And then um, the old habit of giving somebody Tylenol before an immunization. <laughs> was, oh, that, um, that, can, that can really, they've done studies on that. They actually mm-hmm. looking at the autism rates in Cuba where Tylenol is not available. Um, their autism rates are much less. It's very interesting. And it's some, it's all about that giving it to children when they're getting an uh, immunization. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a fascinating study I just read. Um, anyway, and then ozone therapy, um, for autistic children, I prefer the ozone saunas, although they're hard to sort of implement. Um, but um, that in- stimulates natural killer cells and it gets the mitochondria back on board. It's, it's one, of, one of my teachers called it exercise in a bottle. For you know people who can't do that, it it really is great for the system. Um, and then there's some experimental stuff. There's the low-dose immunotherapy I mentioned, fecal transplants, um, um, even or you know less intense, but um, uh, enemas with healthy probiotics instead of taking them orally. <laughs> Helminthic therapy. They're working with um, worms because they're saying that um, humans evolve with worms and in order to create tolerance in our bodies for things and not have such reactivity, we actually need worms. So there's, there's a certain group that gives you human worms and other groups that give you somebody else's worms that don't reproduce inside you, which most people are more comfortable with. Anyway, this is all experimental stuff and it's pretty interesting some of the results they're getting. So, um, and then, um, you know, it's, it's body mind. So there's counseling and ABA and people know that already social skills groups. Um, it's very difficult to have an autism spectrum disorder, especially in the, on the high functioning end, you know, you're different and you don't know how to manage socially. You've got to have that kind of support. Um, one of the great things about nature is that if you're having a difficulty with social connection and you're out in nature, there are no people. There's nothing wrong with you. You are fine. You know, you're just a, you're just a being. And it's great for people um, on the autism sector to be out in nature. The pets can be really good. And then also um, sensory integration things, swinging and qigong massage. There's lots of things with that. Um, But last but not least is love and support. You know, you need to be in a world where you are okay sometimes. And it's not all about making you better, making you learn how to behave, making you say that word, making you... Sometimes you're just a person who other people love, and that is vital to your mental and physical health. And... Our autism spectrum people are, you know, we would be lacking so many things without them, so much great art, so many incredible inventions, you know. I'm not Bill Gates' doctor, but people speculate he has Asperger's, you know. That's huge. Bill Gates. Oh, gotcha. I just didn't hear what you said. Yeah. So, you know. So, and then, you know, there's, there's many people in the world who have made huge contributions who are on the autism spectrum. It is not something to be gotten rid of. But if you're uncomfortable, if you're anxious, if you are having difficulty digesting food, 
if you can't talk to people and you want to, you know, these are things we want to help. So um, that's my that's my take on it. Well, it's really obvious that you have a, uh, if you'll excuse the pun, a holistic view of how to treat autism, <laughs> and its uh, and its generate and its um, its root causes, and um, you, you obviously have a um, a handle on the uh, genetic aspect as well as the treatment aspect, as well as how the genetics point to the root causes and um, their actual function. Yeah, you know, nobody. Uh, nobody knows everything, okay? Um, and what's needed and necessary, of course, are practitioners who have a very good feeling for how everything works so that, you know, we can get um, children or adults on the spectrum to function in a manner in which they choose. In other words, bring them up to um, to where they, you know, where they can be. So uh, it, it's really clear that you have a, have a very deep understanding of this. And this is, and I know I know you personally uh, because you've mentored with us, and you've gone to our seminars. So I know the commitment that you have to your patients, um, and the the carefulness and, and the and the compassion that you uh, treat people with. So if people want to get in touch with you, uh, since you are bicoastal. <laughs> How do they get in touch with you, Anne? Well, um, my my the bulk of my bicoastal stuff is moving to Berkeley, California, in September. I will be back and forth still, but I'll be mostly in um, in Berkeley at the Berkeley Naturopathic Medical Group. Uh, if anybody goes there right now, though, I'm not on their website yet, so don't be alarmed. But um, you can call them and ask for me, and I will be taking appointments starting in middle September. Um, otherwise, you can reach me directly at Hamptons Naturopathic. Um, that's in Watermill, New York, and uh, on Long Island, and I am, that phone number will find me. So, um, Very that cool. Is, yeah, and the numbers are there, but I'll say them out loud in case somebody didn't get the PowerPoint. Is that right? Yes, please. Go ahead. Okay, so the Hamptons Naturopathic number is 631-353-2316. And that's just www.hamptons, with an S, naturopathic.com. And amazingly, Berkeley Naturopathic is www.berkeleynaturopathic.com. So that's useful. Mm -hmm. And... The number is 510-845-8600. Wonderful. So in the rest of this uh, PowerPoint, um, I put in uh, from our previous PowerPoints um, how to choose a healthcare practitioner. And, um, you know, uh, Sean and I created uh, bioindividualized medicine to teach healthcare practitioners how to place genetics and integrated medicine as pro proper perspective. Uh, for your benefit, for the benefit of the patient. And frankly, we've gotten, you know, we're forever being asked, how do we, how do people find practitioners like us, you know, because we, we're pretty well known for the type of work we do. So we decided to create a referral list because um, the other referral lists out there, you kind of didn't know 
uh, what that practitioner's qualifications were. You know, they may have took a course or they were on there for no reason, but our practitioners uh, have good um, solid didactic information and have demonstrated uh, excellence and um, competency in all aspects of bioindividualized medicine. So uh, if you would like a practitioner uh, from our group, go to uh, methylationsupport.com and click the uh, button you'll see right there. It says recommended methylation practitioners. And of course, Dr. Uh, Ann Van Covering is one of our um, practitioners, but there are more in the pipeline. And um, remember that almost all of them will do uh, work with you um, over the internet. Uh, you don't necessarily have to uh, physically go there. My standard joke is, do you think my Australian patients fly in to see me? Uh, not really. Okay, you can reach Dr. Armine, that's me, and Sean Bean at uh, 610-449-9716, or you can fill out the contact form at methylationsupport.com. Uh, and uh, if you have a practitioner that is looking to um, become expert in this area, uh, we will, you know, consider that individual for uh, training. And uh, trust me, uh, I don't take everybody. I turn away a goodly portion. I'd like to open it up for uh, questions now. Uh, we've been talking for about an hour. Uh, anybody who would like to ask Dr. Ann a question, it's 646-595-2277. That's 646-95, I'm sorry, 595-2277. If you're in the chat room, go ahead and type type away and I will ask the question. Uh, and this, uh, you know, it's, it's really obvious you know your stuff and um, the uh, I, I especially like the idea with the Tylenol because uh, I remember that people were often given uh, Tylenol as a, as a fever preventative when they got um, when they got immunizations and and even the, the medical doctors have stopped uh, that practice because they've known the uh, how bad it can be and um, Wow. Well, also, uh, also the point of an immunization is to provoke an immune response, and then you just stop it. That seems a little bit counterintuitive. Yeah, but we, God, God, God forbid we should be a little uncomfortable. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's that's not uh, well done. Well, um, the, the funny thing was is that I had a fever last week. I don't know why. It was this random fever from nowhere, but. I've been feeling kind of foggy for a couple of months, and I've noticed that since I had this random fever for whatever reason it was, I feel like my brain is clear again. I think we need fevers to kind of burn up the stuff and and get on with our lives. Your point is well taken. Do, do you know the one group that doesn't um, get cancer? Uh, Anybody there, out there? People who've had Isn't malaria. There, is it, okay, interesting. Intermittent People fever. have had malaria because they've had incredibly high fevers. As a matter of fact, in some alternative uh, medicine venues, uh, they will initiate high fevers uh, for somebody yeah. for like an entire week uh, in order to you know kill off. So a lot of times, having a fever is not necessarily as, as uncomfortable as it can be. Is not necessarily a bad thing. Of course, you have to be careful about dehydration and everything else, but uh, it isn't necessarily the evil thing that we say that it is. Okay, it's very, very therapeutic. It, do, it does cause you to sleep. You know, there are neurophysiologic reasons for that. 
uh, and it's your immune system responding the way it should. The other thing you alluded to that I thought was interesting is um, the helmetic therapy, because uh, we as humans grew up with worms and you know stuff uh, that we would be, uh, and, and I think, um, I'll go with the comedian, uh, George Carlin did a wonderful <laughs> uh, ditty about the immune system uh, when he was um, alive. And uh, he, he basically said that in the 40s, when he grew up, uh, polio was the big problem. Okay. And he, uh, he grew up in uh, East New York, where it was kind of a poor neighborhood. He said in his neighborhood, kids didn't get polio because they swam in the Hudson River amongst raw sewage. And that their immune system got plenty of practice because they went in and swam amongst horrible stuff that we wouldn't even think about. I've often wondered if our germophobia and constantly using antibacterial this, antibacterial that, um, hasn't created a situation where our, our immune systems haven't gotten enough practice to fight microorganisms and one of the reasons that we're sicker now than we ever have been. Well, there's there's a couple of um, things. There's one on the microbiome of, of people uh, growing up in Africa and how much more diverse and varied their microbiome is and how much more robust their response is to parasites and how they don't get sick from them like the way we do. So that that's a really interesting piece of work that somebody's doing. And then the other thing is that historically polio became a problem with increased hygiene. It used to be, I mean, of course, every there was always people who got terribly ill, you know, mine. but it used to be a, a chi- uh, something you got when you were quite small and it wasn't very serious. And then as we cleaned up our environment, whatever, people started getting it older and it started becoming more crippling. And um, there's some interesting uh, medical history about that. <clears throat> So George Carlin was right. Go for it. <laughs> Say again? I said George Carlin was right. Jo- absolutely George Carlin was right, you know? Yeah. Absolutely he was correct. And it was really interesting. It's it's a great it's a great piece of comedy that he did. But um he basically he said that if you don't expose yourself um to illness or, or viruses and stuff, you know, when the big one comes along, you're not going to be able to fight it. And, uh, you know, I always remember that, you know, I, I was a nurse for a long time and, you know, let's face it, you know, I get exposed to a lot of stuff, but doctors and nurses a lot of times don't get ill because we get little doses of stuff all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like getting immunizations as you're, as you're going from room to room, you know? And, and I mean, I, I realize that, you know, um, that's probably not as accurate, but remember what we're getting inoculated without, you know, without the benefit of uh, mercury, thimerosal, aluminum, anything else, and just getting you know, somebody well, sneezing it's also, on it's me. Also, you know? it's, also com- it's also coming in the way that the, the that particular thing is supposed to come into you. You know, um, you know, you don't get the flu by bloodborne. You get the flu by breathing which is maybe why the, you know, aerosolized versions of the vaccine work, you know, more effectively. So it's interesting, you know, all that. There's a lot of theory around that. Yeah. There's a, it, uh, the whole immune 
uh, difficulties that we're running into. Uh, people always talk about the immune system not working. I always think of it as the immune, immune system being overcommitted, you know, having yeah. to fight numerous things at once. But what bothers me is how it got that way. You know, um, I'm, I'm looking at people comparatively young that are fighting multiple microbial problems, you know, where they're fighting Lyme, anaplasma, uh, HHV6, or, or, you know, uh, anything you can think of, and they're fighting it. And um, and then the longer it's there, the longer they have leaky gut, you can start doing like a live blood cell analysis and see that it's taken up residence in their bloodstream inside their cells. It's the, uh, it's the most incredible thing to see. And I understand now why the immune system is working so blessedly hard and is so overcommitted. You know, and it's like, a you know, an army going into a country and just having to fight numerous battles. The general can't put enough soldiers in each battle um, to win the war. Yeah, and I and think we're losing that's the war. Where, that's, where, that's where our fevers come in. They just sort of, you know, it's like, you know, we're just going to make, you know, it so it's very inhospitable for all of them. <laughs> and that, you know, and then, it, then you have more ability to fight. I agree. I agree. So the, the real point, people, oh, somebody's typing up something. This is good. The real point is to not only consider what you see in front of you, which is what we like to call a downstream effect, but to consider what are causative agents and what those causative agents did to the body so that it is unable to heal. If you start thinking like that, you know, you stop, you stop this focus on diagnosis, like I'm going to treat this and that's it. Okay, or I'm going to treat that and that's it. We start the stupidity of, uh, stop the stupidity of rotating antibiotics or antimicrobials because if your immune system simply isn't working up to par, you know, as soon as you stop treating one thing uh, and you go off to something else, that one thing you were treating starts growing again because you know, let's face it, when you give somebody an antibiotic, you don't kill all the microorganisms. You're supposed to bring it down to the point that the body can take care of it itself. In other words, the immune system can take care of it on its own, but it never gets there because, you know, everything is being allowed to grow. The whole um, microbiome thing is going to be very, very, very cool. I understand that the microbiome is what essentially runs um, our genetic expression. Okay, yeah. and that's uh, that's fascinating to me. Um, yeah. And um, I see somebody typing, so I'm I'm hoping that they will type in a a question. Again, people out there, we got a, we got about ten minutes left to the show, so if you want to ask a question, and you know you've got a real expert sitting on the line, so go for it. Six four six five nine five two two seven seven. That's six four six five nine five two two seven seven. Um, I know it's summertime, but I know you're out there listening. I can hear you breathing. Anyway, so you know, there's there's numerous factors that are um, that cause autism and prevent it from healing. Uh, you talked about the dopamine receptors. Um, you know, I'm beginning to see because of Sterling's app, we can you know now assess the um, the DRD1, two, and three, and four receptors. Uh, and sometimes I wonder if um, high dopamine uh, is partially because of stimulation from the bugs and or receptor dysfunction. Uh, the question here is today, as a nutritionist, can you recommend any resources for learning more about autism, books, so forth and so on? 
Well, the the classic book is, of course, the uh, GAPS diet, the gut and psychology uh, syndrome uh, diet that was, um, that is the one that has been used the most for autism. Um, there are several really good books on um, special needs diets. Um, you just Google, if you look, Google uh, di- uh, special needs diets on uh, Amazon, you get several of them. Some of them have cookbooks. There's some great books on how to help picky eaters eat properly. That can be really important because there's a whole sensory issue thing. And, you know, most um, of the children I know on the autism spectrum, it's like they could survive on cheese and gluten. That's all they eat. And um, there's both sensory and there's a a way that um, the more than most people, the people on the autism spectrum tend to, like, take off... uh, they turn those into morphines, and they become very addicted to cheese and bread uh, or wheat and dairy. Yeah, Gluteomorphin and caseomorphin. Right, exactly. And those are actually, you know, you will have children melting down and crying when you take away their bread mm-hmm. and cheese for those reasons because they're actually having withdrawal. Um, so the whole how to get picky eaters to eat properly, those are very important books. Um, and... Um, that's a good start. Um, again, if you look through your um, child's or who, you know, I don't know if you're a practitioner or a parent, but if you look through the um, what's going on and you see symptoms of high glutamine and high glutamate, then you're going to want to do a low glutamate diet. Now, that could be a problem with the gaps because if you are focusing on fermented foods, those are high glutamate foods. So some people don't do well on that diet because they're sensitive to glutamate. And so they can't deal with the bone broth and the fermented foods that are part of that diet, but they can do with the rest of it. So that's the kind of tweaking that is involved. Did that help? Well, it does help. I'm, um, I'd like a little bit more opinion from you about fermented foods. I'm, I've never been a... I've never been a supporter of them because I think it, um, and maybe I'm wrong, uh, so you seem like the person to ask, um, do fermented foods support yeast growth or? No. I always have this feeling like it's supporting. No, actually fermented foods, okay, every single uh, sort of culture in the world has a fermented food. That's how we got probiotics before we had them in little pills. Um, that's how you repopulate your gut microbiome. That's how you, it's very, very important food um, for people. Um, And if you give your, if you eat fermented foods, there's not as much room for candida and yeast overgrowth. That's the issue. There's, There's one strain of candida that we consider a problem, candida albicans. And we have, you know, like Saccharomyces boulardiae, that's a yeast. And you people take it to prevent candida and to prevent Clostridium difficile. So, if you imagine um, clear a, a field that's been like clear cut, like antibiotics will like just get rid of everything in the field. It's like it's been sprayed with Roundup, right? And what starts to come back is the weeds first. And if we want a nice green lawn, we have to put some grass seed down. Otherwise, all we right. have is weeds. 
And so that's the problem with antibiotics and candida, is we have killed off all of the good bacteria, so now there's nothing in the way of all that candida growing. But you eat probiotics and you eat fermented foods, and you are, you are crowding those, those weeds out and making a very healthy lawn or actually a meadow and with all sorts of different things that provide all sorts of habitat for different, you know, it basically keeps your guts, guts healthy. So fermented foods are really good for you. Hmm. Yeah, I never thought about it like that. You know, I really didn't. I always think, well, these are created by yeast, can't be good. <laughs> no, it's actually, you know, but that was it feeds on the yeast. It eats the yeast. It makes it go away. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm not ashamed to say that I learned something. You know, I can't, I can't know everything, and I'm, you know, that's why, um, like, when you pick one of our practitioners, you're actually joining a family because we all talk amongst one another. So um, it doesn't look like anybody's calling, and um, nobody else is typing. So I think I'm going to um, say thank you to our host. I'm, I'm thank the host. Thank you to our guest. <laughs> for uh, joining us tonight. I really appreciate the time you spent and I know how much time you spent on that, on that uh, PowerPoint. Uh, and uh, I, I appreciate your commitment to health and uh, your commitment to um, the people who suffer most. And those are, um, you know, the people with hidden illnesses and uh, children with autism and their families. So I'm glad to have you on board. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you very much. You're Thank most you welcome. So next week, guys, uh, we're going to have uh, Wendy Myers. Wendy Myers is a uh, has a uh, website and podcast. Uh, it's called Live to One Ten, Live to One Hundred and Ten dot com. Uh, Wendy is a uh, has um, certification in uh, functional diagnostic nutrition, and she's a certified health counselor, and is the founder and head writer of Live to One Ten dot com. Uh, she is a health coach in Los Angeles. Uh, she attended the Institute for Integrative Nutrition in New York and has a degree in entrepreneurship from the University of Southern California. She's also certified in um, hair and mineral analysis for the purpose of designing the mineral power program for clients to correctly their metabolism and body chemistry with customized targeted nutrition therapy. And presently, she's in a master's degree program for clinical nutrition. And I believe that um, she had about one or two things that she wanted to talk about. So uh, I don't remember exactly what subject, but we're going to have a good time. Uh, Wendy's a, a very uh, interesting guest. We've been on her podcast, Sean and I, a couple of times. So uh, guys, keep a eye out for uh, our blog posts. And uh, don't forget to go to our new website, which is the same, methylationsupport.com. And uh, go ahead and give us your email address and sign up for the monthly newsletter. And I will send you the How to Read Your 23andMe Without Going Crazy, uh, which I turned into a video. Uh, if anybody signs up and doesn't get it, let me know, okay, because we're still working out some bugs, okay? <laughs> no pun intended. But, again, thank you for your attention tonight, and uh, thank, thanks, Dr. Evan, for being here. I'm uh, really, really happy, and uh, i got to tell you something. Things are going along. Okay, and uh, in case anybody doesn't know, because I've already posted it, that uh, for some reason, and, and it's all good reasons, uh, the amount of people who have listened to our podcasts 
uh, over the past year or so has exceeded 90,000. Okay, believe it or not, 90,000 people have listened to the, to the podcasts. Um, we must be putting out good information because that's a lot of people. If you go to Blog Talk Radio and go to the health section, our podcasts are on the front page because the top of the archive podcast, people who are downloading it, that's where you can see it. So I was like, wow. Anyway, thanks for your patronage, so to speak. Uh, and, um, you know, if you have ideas of things you'd like to uh, have us research and talk about, I'm always open. And uh, I will see you guys next week. Thanks so much. It's been a long road Getting from there to here It's been a long time But my time is finally here But I can feel a change in the wind right now Nothing's in my way You know, I always talk a little bit around this time about why we use this theme song. But uh, when it concerns autistic children and their parents, they are the epitome of having the strength of soul, the strength to go on. Uh, don't forget, we're here with you. Okay, there are ways of improving everybody's condition. There are ways you don't have to live in pain or live in fear. Okay, check us out. Ask questions, email us. We're here to help you. We're here to support you. Guys, have a good week. <laughs>